Part One of Stikine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stikine by John Muir. Part One. To Helen Muir, lover of wilderness, this icy storm story is affectionately dedicated. TO MY DOG BLANCO BY J. G. HOLLAND My dear dumb friend low-lying there, A willing vassal at my feet, Glad partner of my home and fair, My shadow in the street. I look into your great brown eyes, Where love and loyal homage shine, And wonder where the difference lies Between your soul and mine. I scan the whole broad earth around, for that one heart which, leal and true, bears friendship without end or bound, and find the prize in you. Ah, Blanco, did I worship God as truly as you worship me, or follow where my master trod with your humility? Did I sit fondly at his feet, as you, dear Blanco, sit at mine, and watch him with a love as sweet, my life, would grow divine. Stikine. In the summer of 1880, I set out from Fort Wrangell in a canoe to continue the exploration of the icy region of southeastern Alaska, begun in the fall of 1879. After the necessary provisions, blankets, etc., had been collected and stowed away, and my Indian crew were in their places ready to start, while a crowd of their relatives and friends on the wharf were bidding them good-bye and good luck, my companion, the Reverend S. H. Young, for whom we were waiting, at last came aboard, followed by a little black dog that immediately made himself at home by curling up in a hollow among the baggage. I liked dogs, but this one seemed so small and worthless that I objected to his going and asked the missionary why he was taking him. "'Such a little helpless creature will only be in the way,' I said. "'You had better pass him up to the Indian boys on the wharf "'to be taken home to play with the children. "'This trip is not likely to be good for toy dogs. "'The poor silly thing will be in rain and snow for weeks or months "'and will require care like a baby.' "'But his master assured me that he would be no trouble at all, "'that he was a perfect wonder of a dog, "'could endure cold and hunger like a bear, "'swim like a seal,' and was wondrous wise and cunning, etc., making out a list of virtues to show he might be the most interesting member of the party. Nobody could hope to unravel the lines of his ancestry. In all the wonderfully mixed and varied dog tribe, I never saw any creature very much like him, though in some of his sly, soft, gliding motions and gestures he brought the fox to mind. He was short-legged and bunchy-bodied, and his hair, though smooth, was long and silky and slightly waved, so that when the wind was at his back it ruffled, making him look shaggy. At first sight his only noticeable feature was his fine tail, which was about as airy and shady as a squirrel's, and was carried curling forward almost to his nose. On closer inspection you might notice his thin, sensitive ears, and sharp eyes with cunning tan spots above them. Mr. Young told me that when the little fellow was a pup about the size of a wood rat, he was presented to his wife 
by an Irish prospector at Sitka, and that on his arrival at Fort Wrangell he was adopted with enthusiasm by the Stikine Indians as a sort of new good-luck totem, was named Stikine for the tribe, and became a universal favorite, petted, protected, and admired wherever he went, and regarded as a mysterious fountain of wisdom. On our trip he soon proved himself a queer character, odd, concealed, independent, keeping invincibly quiet, and doing many little puzzling things that became my curiosity. As we sailed week after week through the long intricate channels and inlets among the innumerable islands and mountains of the coast, he spent most of the dull days in sluggish ease, motionless and apparently as unobserving as if in deep sleep. But I discovered that somehow he always knew what was going on. When the Indians were about to shoot at ducks or seals, or when anything along the shore was exciting our attention, he would rest his chin on the edge of the canoe and calmly look out like a dreamy-eyed tourist. And when he heard us talking about making a landing, he immediately roused himself to see what sort of place we were coming to, and made ready to jump overboard and swim ashore as soon as the canoe neared the beach. Then, with a vigorous shake to get rid of the brine in his hair, he ran into the woods to hunt small game. But though always the first out of the canoe, he was always the last to get into it. When we were ready to start, he could never be found, and refused to come to our call. We soon found out, however, that though we could not see him at such times, he saw us, and from the cover of the briars and huckleberry bushes in the fringe of the woods was watching the canoe with wary eye. For as soon as we were fairly off, he came trotting down the beach, plunged into the surf, and swam after us, knowing well that we would cease rowing and take him in. When the contrary little vagabond came alongside, he was lifted by the neck, held at arm's length a moment to drip, and dropped aboard. We tried to cure him of this trick by compelling him to swim a long way, as if we had a mind to abandon him. But this did no good. The longer the swim, the better he seemed to like it. Though capable of great idleness, he never failed to be ready for all sorts of adventures and excursions. One pitch-dark rainy night we landed about ten o'clock, at the mouth of a salmon stream where the water was phosphorescent. The salmon were running, and the myriad fins of the onrushing multitude were churning all the stream into a silvery glow, wonderfully beautiful and impressive in the ebon darkness. To get a good view of the show I set out with one of the Indians and sailed up through the midst of it to the foot of a rapid about half a mile from camp, where the swift current, dashing over rocks, made the luminous glow most glorious. Happening to look back down the stream while the Indian was catching a few of the struggling fish, I saw a long, spreading fan of light like the tail of a comet, which we thought must be made by some big, strange animal that was pursuing us. On it came with its magnificent train, until we imagined we could see the monster's head and eyes. But it was only Stikine, who, finding I had left the camp, came swimming after me to see what was up. When we camped early, the best hunter of the crew usually went to the woods for a deer, and Stikine was sure to be at his heels, provided I had not gone out. For, strange to say, though I never carried a gun, he always followed me, forsaking the hunter and even his master, 
to share my wanderings. The days that were too stormy for sailing I spent in the woods or on the adjacent mountains, wherever my studies called me, and Stickeen always insisted on going with me, however wild the weather, gliding like a fox through dripping huckleberry bushes and thorny tangles of panax and rubus, scarce stirring their rain-laden leaves, wading and wallowing through snow, swimming icy streams, skipping over logs and rocks and the crevasses of glaciers with the patience and endurance of a determined mountaineer, never tiring or getting discouraged. Once he followed me over a glacier, the surface of which was so crusty and rough that it cut his feet until every step was marked with blood. But he trotted on with Indian fortitude until I noticed his red track, and, taking pity on him, made him a set of moccasins out of a handkerchief. However great his troubles, he never asked help or made any complaint, as if, like a philosopher, he had learned that without hard work and suffering there could be no pleasure worth having. Yet none of us was able to make out what Stickeen was really good for. He seemed to meet danger and hardships without anything like reason, insisted on having his own way, never obeyed an order, and the hunter could never set him on anything or make him fetch the birds he shot. His equanimity was so steady it seemed due to want of feeling. Ordinary storms were pleasures to him, and as for mere rain, he flourished in it like a vegetable. No matter what advances you might make, scarce a glance or a tail-wag would you get for your pains. But though he was apparently as cold as a glacier and about as impervious to fun, I tried hard to make his acquaintance, guessing there must be something worth while hidden beneath so much courage, endurance, and love of wild, weathery adventure. No superannuated mastiff or bulldog grown old in office surpassed this fluffy midget in stoic dignity. He sometimes reminded me of a small, squat, unshakable desert cactus, for he never displayed a single trace of the merry, tricksy, elfish fun of the terriers and collies that we all know, nor of their touching affection and devotion. Like children, most small dogs beg to be loved and allowed to love, but Stickeen seemed a very Diogenes, asking only to be let alone, a true child of the wilderness, holding the even tenor of his hidden life with the silence and serenity of nature. His strength of character lay in his eyes. They looked as old as the hills, and as young, and as wild. I never tired of looking into them. It was like looking into a landscape, but they were small and rather deep-set, and had no explaining lines around them to give out particulars. I was accustomed to look into the faces of plants and animals, and I watched the little sphinx more and more keenly as an interesting study. But there is no estimating the wit and wisdom concealed and latent in our lower fellow mortals until made manifest by profound experiences, for it is through suffering that dogs, as well as saints, are developed and made perfect. After exploring the Sumdum and Taku fjords and their glaciers, we sailed through Stevens Passage into Lynn Canal, and thence through Icy Strait into Cross Sound, searching for unexplored inlets leading toward the great fountain ice fields of the Fairweather Range. Here, while the tide was in our favor, we were accompanied by a fleet of icebergs 
drifting out to the ocean from Glacier Bay. Slowly we paddled around Vancouver's Point, Wimbledon, our frail canoe tossed like a feather on the massive heaving swells coming in past Cape Spencer. For miles the sound is bounded by precipitous mural cliffs, which, lashed with wave spray and their heads hidden in clouds, look terribly threatening and stern. Had our canoe been crushed or upset, we could have made no landing here, for the cliffs as high as those of Yosemite sink sheer into deep water. Eagerly we scanned the wall on the north side for the first sign of an opening fjord or harbor, all of us anxious except Stikin, who dozed in peace or gazed dreamily at the tremendous precipices when he heard us talking about them. At length we made the joyful discovery of the mouth of the inlet now called Taylor Bay, and about five o'clock reached the head of it and encamped in a spruce grove near the front of a large glacier. While camp was being made, Joe the hunter climbed the mountain wall on the east side of the fjord in pursuit of wild goats, while Mr. Young and I went to the glacier. We found that it is separated from the waters of the inlet by a tide-washed moraine and extends an abrupt barrier all the way across from wall to wall of the inlet, a distance of about three miles. But our most interesting discovery was that it had recently advanced, though again slightly receding. A portion of the terminal moraine had been ploughed up and shoved forward, uprooting and overwhelming the woods on the east side. Many of the trees were down and buried, or nearly so. Others were leaning away from the ice cliffs ready to fall, and some stood erect with the bottom of the ice plough still beneath their roots and its lofty crystal spires towering high above their tops. The spectacle presented by these century-old trees standing close beside a spiry wall of ice, with their branches almost touching it, was most novel and striking. And when I climbed around the front and a little way up the west side of the glacier, I found that it had swelled and increased in height and width in accordance with its advance, and carried away the outer ranks of trees on its bank. On our way back to camp after these first observations, I planned a far and wide excursion for the morrow. I woke early, called not only by the glacier, which had been on my mind all night, but by a grand flood storm. The wind was blowing a gale from the north, and the rain was flying with the clouds in a wide, passionate, horizontal flood, as if it were all passing over the country instead of falling on it. The main perennial streams were booming high above their banks, and hundreds of new ones roaring like the sea almost covered the lofty gray walls of the inlet with white cascades and falls. I had intended making a cup of coffee and getting something like a breakfast before starting, but when I heard the storm and looked out I made haste to join it. For many of nature's finest lessons are to be found in her storms, and if careful to keep in right relations with them, we may go safely abroad with them, rejoicing in the grandeur and beauty of their works and ways, and chanting with the old Norsemen, the blast of the tempest aids our oars. The hurricane is our servant and drives us whither we wish to go. So, omitting breakfast, I put a piece of bread in my pocket and hurried away. Mr. Young and the Indians were asleep, and so I hoped was Stikine. 
but I had not gone a dozen rods before he left his bed in the tent and came boring through the blast after me. That a man should welcome storms for their exhilarating music and motion, and go forth to see God making landscapes, is reasonable enough. But what fascination could there be in such tremendous weather for a dog? Surely nothing akin to human enthusiasm for scenery or geology. Anyhow, on he came, breakfastless, through the choking blast. I stopped and did my best to turn him back. Now don't, I said, shouting to make myself heard in the storm. Now don't, Stickeen. What has got into your queer noodle now? You must be daft. This wild day has nothing for you. There is no game abroad, nothing but weather. Go back to camp and keep warm. Get a good breakfast with your master, and be sensible for once. I can't carry you all day or feed you, and this storm will kill you. But nature, it seems, was at the bottom of the affair, and she gains her ends with dogs as well as with men, making us do as she likes, shoving and pulling us along her ways, however rough, all but killing us at times in getting her lessons driven hard home. After I had stopped again and again, shouting good warning advice, I saw that he was not to be shaken off, as well might the earth try to shake off the moon. I had once led his master into trouble when he fell on one of the topmost jags of a mountain and dislocated his arm. Now the turn of his humble companion was coming. The pitiful little wanderer just stood there in the wind, drenched and blinking, saying doggedly, "'Where thou goest, I will go.' So at last I told him to come on if he must, and gave him a piece of the bread I had in my pocket. Then we struggled on together, and thus began the most memorable of all my wild days. End of Part 1